Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see everyone here today. Bob did a great job last week of doing an overview of 3 through 14, and there is just so much here that the leadership felt like we need to kind of do some more drilling down to really dig out the treasure that is here. On July 30th of this year, treasure hunters off the coast of Florida recovered rare gold coins from the shipwreck that happened in 1715, the Fleet Queen's Jewels ship. They recovered over 300 coins, each of them worth $300,000 each. They were part of the Spanish ship, and they were called royals. They're a special gold coin. Each of them is unique and individually made. And these treasure hunters went from being average Joes to being rich overnight. And you see a picture of them on, online. They have this gold in their hands, and they're all four just smiling. They've come across this incredible treasure. I want to say that what they discovered is small compared to what we have in verses 3 through 14. And may God give us grace by his spirit to see what we have been given. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus is talking and he makes this statement. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price. And I am totally inadequate to explain this text and all that it has to offer but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit that lives within you will be able to open up your eyes and realize what you have. If you realize the treasure that you have, you will be changed. You will be transformed. My thesis for this sermon is the love of God is the fuel for our worship And our transformation. Do you feel like you just don't worship God like you should? Do you feel like you're not becoming more like Jesus? Are you frustrated with that? Do you find yourself kind of slugging through the Christian life, trying to do better? May I say to you, what has happened is you don't understand the treasure that you have. If you truly understood what you have, your worship would soar. And your zeal to become holy and righteous would greatly increase. And you would be empowered to become more and more what Jesus wants you to be. The reason Paul is writing this book is again to accentuate Jesus. He does that in every book, doesn't he? Jesus becomes the central figure. In the first 30 through 14, he tells us what God has done for us. 
He's told us the blessings we have, the spiritual blessings, and he tries to unpack those in one long Greek sentence. And then the latter part of chapter 1, he now prays for those who are going to get the letter that they'll be able to understand with depth what he just told them in 3 through 14. Because if they understand it, they will be changed. And then in chapter 2, he tells us who we are. He tells us our condition. So chapter 1, he tells us what God did. Number 2, he tells us who we are in our desperate situation, our hopeless situation. And then he tells us that we are saved not by anything we've done, but because of God's rich mercy. And then he tells us that he's making us into one great spiritual house, Jews and Gentiles put together. And in chapter 3, he talks about this incredible mystery of Jesus and what he has come to do. And once he gets through with verses, chapters 1 through 3, then in 4 through 6, because we understand these things and have been gripped in our heart, we now have the power to begin to be unified and to put off sin and to begin to really be all that God wants us to be. But the key to your worship and your transformation is understanding the love of God. That is it. Why do you need to have a time in the Word each day? To be reminded of the love of God. Our problem is that we are, even though we are Christians, we still can be self-focused and are all about our own glory and our own pleasure. Paul, in this letter, seeks to reorient us around the glory of God and his pleasure. We have to get our orientation straight. It's about God and his glory. But our natural tendency is to focus on ourselves and to distrust God. Why is it hard for us to hang on to the love of God? I thought about that this week. Why do we constantly have to be reminded about the love of God? There's probably more than two reasons, but I have two. Number one is we're sinful people. And we see our sin every day. And we're even shocked by our own sin from time to time. And it's really, really hard for us to imagine that God loves us the way we are. Amen? It's really hard for us to hold on to that, that he loves us. The second thing is life can be hard. And life can deal you a difficult hand. And we can, t- can, and we can take that trial or sickness or loss of job or whatever it is we face. And we can... Reflect that back to God and say, God doesn't really love me. Or he wouldn't let me go through this situation. May I say to you that as you look at our country and you look at the world around us and where it's headed, we're not on a happy, we're not on a happy little path. There's lots of challenges, lots of pain out there. And your temptation is going to be God really doesn't love me because he's all this stuff I'm having to go through. So between our own sin 
and the trials that we face in our life, we can quickly doubt God's love. Once we do that, worship shuts down. Once we do that, transformation becoming like him shuts down. The serpent in the garden caused Adam and Eve to distrust the love and the goodness of God. And you and I, brothers and sisters, have to fight for it. Daily, knowing that we're loved by him. So we're going to unpack the love of God, not completely. There's no way to do that completely. Today we're going to cover three simple terms that Paul uses. And we're going to try to go a little bit deeper. One of them is election. The second one is adoption. And the third one is redemption. And we're not going to argue about them. We're just going to take them at face value and believe them. And ask the question, what does it do for my understanding of God's love for me? Okay? So we're going to unpack the love of God in three terms. Election. Adoption. Redemption. Then we're going to pick up some more stuff next week. And try to finish up 14. And then Lord willing go on to 15. Now you may think, well you're taking a long time here. Some of my fellow pastors have spent 73 messages on Ephesians. There's a lot of gold in them here hills. But the goal here is not just to learn something. The goal, friends, is for us to be gripped by the love of God. That's the goal. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would grip our heart with the truth of this passage of Scripture like only you can and that you would transform us into worshipers who are becoming more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Legan Duncan said, very important truth, there is a God and I am not him. Because in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of the difficulties and trials and disappointments of life, our world tends to shrink and our eyes tend to turn in on ourselves. And we think what is most important in life is getting out of whatever fix we are in. Do I hear an amen anywhere on that one? That's true, isn't it? When life bears in and the problems we face Our focus leaves God and his greatness and his grandeur and his love. And we get right down here in the weeds and we are focused on our problem. And we think what is most important in life is getting out of that fix that we are in. And that the most important thing that God can do is to accommodate us in that. If I'm sick, God make me well. If I am out of a job, Lord, give me a job. Lord, if there's conflict, make it be peaceful. If I'm in debt, get me out of debt. If our country's in a mess, get our country back in a peaceful situation. And that becomes our complete focus. And that becomes what's most important to us because we are all, even though we're saved, we still focus on ourselves and our situation. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones observes, Much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so subjective, so interested in ourselves, so egocentric. That is the peculiar error of this present century, and I would say in all centuries. We don't have the corner on that market. We must not start by examining ourselves and our needs microscopically. We must start with God and forget ourselves. Jones goes on, there is no more true test of a Christian profession than to discover how prominent this note of praise and thanksgiving is in our life. You're either God-centered, Christ-centered in your thinking, or you are egocentric in your thinking. And may I suggest it's a battle every day. It's a battle when you open your eyes, isn't it? As we deal with all that life has to bring to us and the surprises that we face. So the question I have for you today is not are you a Christian or you're not a Christian. That's an important question. But if you're a believer here today, are your thoughts Christ-centered, Christ-focused? Or is it really all about you and how Jesus can help you? So we look at the first term that he talks about here. He talks about election in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We were chosen before the foundation of the earth. You were chosen before the foundation of the earth. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says this, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, God chose a people from every people, tongue, tribe and nation to put his love on. If you're a believer here today, he loved you before the foundation of the world. He loved you before the foundation of the world. Now, who are we? Well, Revelation, Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they are and have become useless. There is none of who is good. No, not one. Because of the fall of Adam, everyone was turned against God. Every one of us in this pew at one point were a rebel against God. And yet, before any of that happened before we even came into existence, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now you have people who love you. You have people, you have your parents who love you. They loved you from the moment you were conceived and they loved you despite how you've lived and they persevered and gone on. But I tell you, you have a heavenly father if you're a believer in Christ who loved you before the world began, you were chosen before the world began. Election means that he set his love on you. 
And long before we ever existed or even before the world existed. If your salvation depends on God's choice of you before he created the world, then it's a sure thing. Isn't that encouraging? His love that he laid on you before the foundations of the earth is a sure hope that he will bring you all the way to glory. Isn't that encouraging? You weren't just an afterthought. He didn't, after the fall in Genesis 3, go, oh my goodness, look what happened here. We've got to come up with a plan. No, he knew Genesis 3 would happen before the foundations of the earth. And he loved you. He knew you and he loved you. That right there is tons of fuel for your worship. Amen? He loved you longer than you existed. Look at Revelation 18. We all hear the the reading of the scripture and the Lamb's book of life or the, the book of life. Look at Revelation 17 real quickly here. He's talking about the beast in verse 8 of 17. It says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Who will follow the beast at the end of the age? It will be those whose names were not written in the book of life. And when was it written? Before the foundations of the earth. You have been loved before the foundations of the earth. So election. All right. Number two, adoption. Verses 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He chose us. That means we're what? Predestined to be what? Adopted. There is no question about it. Now, we have limited predestination from time to time, don't we? We go online and we do orbits or we do some airline and we make make a selection, don't we? And we pick a flight and we pay for it. And Lord willing, there's a seat there for us when we get to the terminal. And we're, we're predestinating ourselves to go where? To this location, to take this flight. Because God loved us before the foundations of the earth, we were predestined... To be adopted as sons. Look at Acts 4.27. We read here, this is Peter talking to the crowd about Christ. This crowd who crucified him just months ago. He says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus was predestined to be betrayed by the, by the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, the thing with our predestination, if we're taking a flight, we are not all powerful, are we? And we can get bumped off the plane. The plane can have mechanical problems. The weather can set in. All kinds of things can happen to our great plans. But with God, he's the creator of the universe. When he makes a choice, it happens. When he predestines something, it takes place. As much as he predestined Jesus to die on the cross, he predestined those he chose before the foundations of the earth to be adopted. That is a sure thing, isn't it? To be adopted as sons. Now, there is a present reality of adoption and there's a future reality of adoption. I've had friends who have gone to China or, or different places around the world to adopt children. And sometimes the way it works is they go to that place, they actually find the child, they spend some time with the child, they get the finances in place, they come back home, make everything ready, and then they do what? They come back. So in the first trip... That child is adopted. It is a sure thing. As sure as it can be on this earth. But it's not really realized. Because the child's still in the orphanage. It's still in this current situation. But the price has been paid. All the legal documents are in place. And this is going to happen. That's where we are today, brothers and sisters. We are in the present reality of adoption. Romans eight fifteen through 17. Romans eight fifteen through 17. I know you're thumbing through that in your electronic Bible. That's why I don't hear the pages turning. Have, could we have some pages turning? Just to humor the preacher. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. A very personal term for God, Abba. We've been given a spirit of adoption. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we are heirs also Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Right now, you and I are adopted. We are children of the king. But, and the kingdom is expanding and yet there is a kingdom to come. And we're looking forward to that. We have a reservation. We have been predestined to get there. And we're going through this world and living like everybody else is and trying to make life make sense. But we, there's something that's happened to us. We have been adopted. We have a new name. We have a new father. We have a new family. And this church right here is a little microcosm of that family. It's glorious. And that would be wonderful all in itself, but there's more. There's a future reality. Romans eight twenty three. 
Not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. When's that going to take place? When Jesus comes. When he comes in the clouds with the trumpet call of God and the voice of the archangel, and he calls his people to himself. The adoption becomes reality. Even more reality than it is now. The adoption is sons, the redemption of our body. We're all waiting for that. The Bible even says that the creation is groaning. The earth and creation is groaning, waiting for Christ to return and make everything right. And you and I are groaning and waiting for him to come. The last words in Revelation are, come, Lord Jesus, come. Do you feel that today? Is that your heart desire? Lord Jesus, come. Come, finalize my adoption. Bring in the kingdom. Rule and reign. Bring in righteousness. Deal with sin. Bring justice. Oh, Father, do that. One pastor states, part of his plan is to glorify himself by reaching down into the gutters of sin and adopt certain miserable street urchins to be his own sons and daughters. How do you like being a miserable street urchin? But that's what we were, weren't we? Even if we looked presentable in our sin We were in the gutter and we were headed for destruction. And yet for God in his glory was to reach down and pull us out. And not just clean us up a little bit and send us on our way, adopt us into his family. Does that really hit home with you? Does it really hit home that you are his? That he has adopted you? Second Thessalonians 2.13 We're told by Paul But we should always give thanks to God for you Brethren, be loved by the Lord Because God has chosen you from the beginning Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. We're called beloved. We're loved. We've been chosen before the foundations. We have been given a new name. We have been adopted. We're children of the King. Sometimes I come up and greet you as brothers and sisters. Because we're what? We're all part of the same family. Or I'll greet you as saints. This is so grand. This is so amazing. As Paul writes this. And why was this done? Because we're basically good people? No. He just didn't pick the good ones. I know you and I, the other one, he got a good one when he got me. No. Because of his own kind pleasure. 
his own pleasure to rescue a people. Did he, was he required in any way to rescue anyone from their sin? When Adam and Eve rebelled and the whole human race rebelled and continues to rebel, is he obligated, is he obligated in any way to throw out a life vest? The scripture is clear. We deserve, we are by nature children of what? Wrath. But because of his kind intention, he did an incredible thing. Adoption is very personal, isn't it? It is very personal. We get to know our father, our new father and son. A wealthy businessman could adopt some poor children from an orphanage and give them everything that money could buy. But what if the businessman were too busy with his many enterprises to spend any time with the children? No doubt their physical situation is better than it was when they were in the orphanage. But every child craves to know and be loved by his father. That's the message of this passage. Is this great God is your father. And he chose you before the foundations of the earth. You were not afterthought. You didn't even exist, but he knew you. And he set his love on you. And it was more than just setting you free to live your life the way you wanted. He adopted you into his family. It was very personal. It was very caring. I work with a man at College Plus who has seven children. I think four or five of them are adopted. He himself was saved later in life. He was a street urchin pulled out of the gutter. And set on a solid rock, Jesus Christ. And now he is reaching out to those children whose parents don't even care if they exist. And is welcoming them into his home. Adoption is very personal. You ask anybody about the love it takes to adopt. It is huge. Because you don't have to adopt, do you? You really don't. God chose to adopt you and I. To give us his name. And to be our father. And to relate with us and to fellowship with us. And to be with us. And he even gave us his spirit as what? The spirit of adoption. Wow. So we said if he chose us, that gives us security, right? How much more if he adopted us? Are we now more secure? Yes, we are. Our salvation is secure because he has now made us his own. And then third is redemption. Election. Adoption, redemption. Verses 7 and 8. And that's all we're going to get to today. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. 
according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Our redemption is in him. If you look through this passage, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us, what? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus, in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. All of this is because of one person, Jesus Christ. Our redemption is in him. Leon Morris says this about redemption. When the first century Romans heard the word redemption... They immediately thought in non-religious terms. It brought to mind the common picture of a slave being purchased and then set free. That's what redemption was. Buying a slave and then setting them free. Every Gentile in the Roman world would have thought of this when he heard the word redemption. The greatest need of every person, whether he recognizes it or not, is that he, has, he must be redeemed. Because of the fall, we are all born slaves to sin. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we read our Bible, no matter how much we go to church, no matter what kind of good deeds we do, there's no way we can pay enough. To redeem ourselves. We can't. The slave in in the Roman Empire. There was no way he had enough money. To pay his way out. That was his destiny. He was a slave. He wasn't a son. And only. With the kind pleasure of somebody else. Who would purchase him. Would he ever be set free. Implicit in the biblical doctrine of redemption is that God did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. We were enslaved to sin and had no power or means to free ourselves. God did not help, need our help in paying the price. In fact, it is an insult to Christ if we think that we can add anything of our own to the great price that he paid. If someone offered you a gift that was worth thousands of dollars and you reached into your pocket and gave him a penny to pay for it, you would insult him. Jesus graciously paid it all. We can do nothing except to receive his gift 
And then as a result, that's going to change our worship and it's going to change the transformation of who we are. Where were we? Let's turn to Matthew 18. The Bible gives great pictures of what this was like. And there's no greater one than this one here. Matthew 18, verses 23 through 28. Peter's asking the question, how many times can we forgive a brother? And then Jesus comes in with this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, this is verse 23, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have, mercy, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. No way. He, that was a complete lie. He couldn't do it. There was no way. He could have thought he could have done it. He, there was no way he could ever pay 10,000 talents. There's no way. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's us, brothers and sisters. We thought we could pay the debt. We thought we could live a good enough life to please God. There's no way on God's creation we could have ever done that. It was purely the mercy of the king who paid your debt, who paid my debt. Do we fully appreciate that? Or has it become something that we've heard so much that it's just kind of hardened us? You were redeemed. A price was paid for you to set you free from being a slave throughout eternity. It was out of the mercy of the king that he did that. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. He didn't pay silver or gold for you. From your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, you were a sinner who came from sinners, who came from sinners, who came from sinners. And you had no hope. And you weren't purchased with silver and gold. But with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's how you and I were purchased. By the blood of the perfect one. Do we understand how personal that purchase was? God just didn't slaughter 10,000 cattle on a hill and you now have your salvation. He sent his only son. 
May we never lose sight of that. That you were purchased at a great price. I was purchased at a great price. I was loved. Truly loved beyond what anybody else could ever do for me. In paying a debt I could never pay. Ever. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul drives this home. He says, verse 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Do you think it's all about you? Do you think it's all about your life and all about what you have going on? You have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And you're no longer your own. You're bought with a price. No matter your situation in life, no matter what you have accumulated, no matter what the situation is, you are not your own. I am not my own. I have been chosen, I have been adopted, and I have been redeemed. And Paul finishes that verse by saying, so glorify God in your body. He's talking about sexual immorality. And he says, listen, you're over here giving your body to this and this and this. Don't you know that you are not your own? That you were purchased with the blood of Jesus. Therefore, quit giving yourself to this and give yourself to him. We have, Spurgeon says, we have nothing apart from Jesus. Our wealth of mercy is in all in Christ. Whatever spiritual blessing you need, God has given it to you in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to spend more time meditating on these truths and letting them grip our heart that we have been loved before the foundations of the earth, that we have been adopted, waiting for our future adoption, and we have been redeemed. Redemption is very, very personal with God. He didn't do it far off somewhere. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22 as we finish. We have, a paint, we have a picture here of redemption. Not only was it a sacrifice for Christ, an incredible sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for the Father as well. Remember the story? God tells Abram, Abraham to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him. Remember that? Verse 6 of chapter 22. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. 
Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went on ahead. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on it and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. And as it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We know how much Abraham loved Isaac. He was the promised son. And the thought of killing his own son is more than we can even handle. And yet this is not here just for this story. This pulls back the curtain between the father and the son. Between God the father and Jesus Christ the son. And we see that they both made a sacrifice. And they didn't stop. The knife did not stop with Jesus. It was completed. Jesus was killed for you and for me. His blood was shed to pay for our redemption. As you and I take these truths and understand them deeply, we're going to understand the love of God. like we haven't before. And that will give us the fuel to worship him from the rising of the sun till the setting of the same. And it will give us the fuel of love knowing that we can fight our fight against sin and we can overcome. And sin will diminish in our eyes as the love of God gets brighter and brighter. For some of us, our problem with sin is our understanding of God's love for us is very dim. It's kind of shaded. And sin looks brighter and brighter. But as you study this word and you see how much God loved you, and you understand that you've been chosen, you've been adopted, you've been redeemed. Your heart's changed. And your life is changed into the image of Jesus. 
This is so important in our lives. We settle for so little of what God has for us because we don't truly understand to the depth we need to what he's done for us. May God give us grace by the power of his spirit within us to fully grasp how much he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are amazed that as poor, dirty street urchins, you reached out to us in love before the foundations of the world. You've adopted us as your sons and daughters and you paid the ultimate price for our redemption. Father, by your spirit, may you take that truth and radically change our worship and our being transformed into the image of Jesus. In his name we pray.